You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to uh, episode eight of Green Mountain Medicine. Uh, We're very excited today to have uh, a very special guest with us. It's uh, Dean Rick Page. Uh, He's the dean of the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, and he's had a a long uh, and accomplished career starting uh, at a place that's actually very close to my own heart, uh, Duke University, where he did his undergraduate degree and his uh, medical school. While he was there, um, he completed a Sarnoff Research uh, Fellowship at, uh, in the pharmaco- pharmacology group at Columbia, uh, where he was doing some um, basic research. And the reason I mention this is that this is actually an opportunity or a, a type of opportunity that Dean Page has um, been advocating to uh, have available to us as medical students at Vermont. Um, there's been two new fellowships uh, for um, taking a year in between third and fourth year of medical school to dedicate to bench research that um, is, is offers some very exciting opportunities for UVM medical students who have uh, a passion for uh, bench research and beyond. After medical school, um, Dean Page uh, did his internal medicine residency in Mass General. Uh, he then returned to uh, Duke to complete his uh, fellowships in cardiology and clinical cardiac electrophysiology. Uh, he, he just told us that it was really in his second year uh, of medical school, or in his clerk, second clerkship, I should say, that he fell in love with internal medicine and then shortly thereafter uh, knew he wanted to go into cardiac electrophysiology, which is I mean, such an uh, incredible, incredibly interesting specialty to, to be at the forefront of. And um, since then, uh, he started his first uh, professorship at Duke and then um, went to be the director of clinical cardiac electrophysiology at UT Southwestern. And then he became head uh, of the division of cardiology at uh, University of Washington and was most recently before being uh, the dean of our college, uh, the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. So Dean Page, you've you've already (laughs) done so much and we're so excited to have you here to talk about um, you know the state of affairs uh, for our medical school and, and how uh, all of this has impacted uh, all of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has affected uh, medical education. Well thank you so much for inviting me and congratulations uh, this is your eighth episode so I'm impressed that the, you've established greater longevity than many of these uh, these uh, sort of endeavors, and um, and and I encourage you to keep going. This is this is really a wonderful way to communicate and get the word out. We absolutely will. Thanks for being here with us, Dr. Team Page. Um, I'll just get us started with our first question. And as you can tell from um, the title of our podcast, it's related to changes in medicine and medical education um, in the time of COVID nineteen. And as you know, COVID-19 and our nation's subsequent mitigation efforts have seemingly touched every aspect of our country, especially higher education. And as Dean, we wanted to hear your perspective on how medical education on a national level is changing for medical trainees 
and whether there are advantages to those types of changes? Well, that's a, such an important question. And first of all, for any of the listeners, I just want to express my, uh, uh, my acknowledgement of what we're all going through. And some are, are under greater stress than others in terms of health challenges, financial challenges, uh, but everyone is touched, and uh, I'm so impressed at how people have have stepped up to this challenge, uh, especially here at the Lerner College of Medicine. Um, this event, just over the last month or two, has uh, changed the world forever, changed healthcare forever, and frankly, is going to be changing medical education forever. Um, the uh, aside from the the interruption of daily life, commerce, travel, and education as we know it, um, we're learning things, and we are having experiences that are um, are changing us. Um, the my own experience as a cardiologist, I don't they don't let me touch sharp objects anymore because. Unless you're doing procedures or operations every week, you shouldn't be doing them at all. But I still see patients in clinic. And I had never done a virtual visit before. And now, Tuesday mornings, I'm sitting at the same desk now in my home, um, seeing patients um, for their heart rhythm problems, new patients and follow-up patients. It's easier for follow-up patients uh, because we already have some rapport. And there are clearly limitations. Uh, just technically, I can't listen to the heart. I can't feel the pulse. I can't obtain an electrocardiogram in real time. Um, and there are changes in the art of medicine as well. Uh, there, there, the, the intimacy of sharing uh, information back and forth with the patient, the laying on of hands, putting the stethoscope to the chest isn't just to listen. It's part of being a doctor. That is absent. Um, but despite that, you can accomplish a lot. So we as a medical group are doing hundreds of, of virtual visits every day. Now, part of that relates to the fact that, that in this emergency situation, some of the rules of telemedicine no longer apply. Billing, whether we, we want to accept it or not, if we aren't reimbursed for what we do, we can't do what we do. We can't pay for, to keep the lights on in clinic. We can't pay for the MAs helping us, the nurses, the, everybody else. So there needs to be a transaction. And now Medicare, Medicaid, and I believe other uh, third-party payers are allowing telemedicine visits uh, as valid billable visits for our patients. Uh, and I can tell you that, that even though something is missing, other things are gained. For example, I saw a patient who is uh, very much overweight and paraplegic. And to get that patient to clinic is a huge undertaking. And frankly, I was able to accomplish just about everything I would have otherwise by that patient not having to be to go through everything it would take to come to clinic. And and um at the end of the day, I think we provided better care in that way. So the bottom line is that, that um, things are changed. Um, we won't always be this way, but we are learning ways to, to improve uh, care in certain circumstances. 
The final thing I'll mention is inclusion. Not everybody is able to get to the doctor. And for someone who is unable to get to the doctor, should that person be denied healthcare? Absolutely not. So we need to work to be able to allow patients to get to the doctor when they need to, but at the same time, if the doctor can come to them, we are going to be more inclusive of those underserved and those who don't have all of the advantages that we wish they have. So in this way, yes, we're changed, but I think um, we um, need to adjust to the current and future realities and also learn if everything magically went back the way it had been four months ago, I would still anticipate we'd be doing some things differently going forward because we've learned from really this experiment in uh, physical distancing. I see. And it sounds like there uh, are quite a number of lessons that uh, the medical group has learned. And I think one follow-up uh, question that we had was that how might these lessons uh, you know, be passed on to our future generation of physicians? And is um, the Larner College of Medicine already working on some projects to maybe uh, get more uh, telemedicine, um, more of a telemedicine curriculum in place? Or, or how are there other ways do you think that this uh, might be impacting our educational philosophy? Well, the, that's a great question in that we, um, what can we learn locally? Um, and, and from my standpoint, um, I think we need telemedicine to be part of clinical activities. I'm personally unclear as to, to what degree the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, LCME, our accreditation body, and the American Association of Medical Colleges, AAMC, their, their official stance on telemedicine and education, and I'm sure those are going to be evolving with the lessons we are learning now. But for example, um, as I saw a new patient last Tuesday, um, could I have had a student with me at that visit? Certainly so. As a matter of fact, there is even an advantage to telemedicine if I had a medical student. So just imagine I've got a brand new medical student. And with all due respect to medical students, the first time you get a a full history, social, past medical history, all of that, it takes a long time. And if I'm in clinic and I'm managing two different rooms, I might be bumping another patient from being able to use that room and be seen in clinic. If I've got a medical student, say, taking a half hour or longer, seeing a patient before I see the patient. In a virtual world, I could have the student join that patient on Zoom for as long as they like. And especially with the loneliness that's going on with people stuck at home, they might appreciate spending an hour with a medical student asking every question that they, that they might want to ask. And then I could zoom into that room. And in point of fact, I could almost have infinite clinic rooms in this new technology. So we're, we're going to learn, I, I imagine telemedicine is always going to be part of our curriculum from here on. And uh, I think we'll be educating and training better doctors that way. It does really sound exciting and something that uh, I know I can say for myself that it would be uh, great to be a part of. And it's, it's exciting to hear that um, these ideas are 
uh, percolating in the administration and that they might be uh, coming soon for us as clinical learners. Uh, I know, uh, you know, Matt and I, and we were talking a little bit earlier about how we feel for other classmates who are uh, in the year below us who are very excited to start their clinical rotations and have, that's all been put on hold uh, for right now. So I think anything that can um, uh, get, uh, get us back in there is uh, an exciting prospect. And you, that's a very good point because the class behind you is the class that may have the greatest impact nationally in terms of the suspension of students participating in clinical education um, nationwide. And, and in point of fact, the nice thing is um, that we are able to identify meaningful educational experiences for those students. Actually, some of our rising third year students, if I could call that, our clerkship year students, are actually taking some courses from advanced integration. So they're getting a jump on their fourth year curriculum. So no time is wasted, and we're not looking for any extension of the time for them to graduate. Furthermore, even the clinical clerkships, now both of you have come through your clerkship year, and you'll recognize that it's not all direct contact with patients. Actually, to the contrary, there are other educational experiences that are not clinical in the clinical clerkships. Maybe up to half of the experience is not patient-related uh, in terms of direct clinical contact. So in that way, as we are now orienting students to clerkships, we're acknowledging the fact that some of the clerkship, clinical clerkships don't require direct clinical contact. And as such, we're kind of front-loading the non-clinical part so that we don't lose time and we still provide meaningful clerkship activities. And then we hope when before long we reemerge in terms of clinical education, the students will then be able to backload their clinical part of their clinical clerkship so they can then continue on in terms of their clerkship year. That's really insightful, Dean Page. I'm actually really glad you brought that, that up because I think one of the concerns that we hear most often from peers and kind of in um, the online medical community, um, particularly with remote medical learning, is that the loss of a more traditional clinical exposure and the time spent providing direct patient care might disadvantage future generations of physicians. And so we're curious to know, you know, how, what, how do you, what do you think of that assessment? And do you think programs will need to make adjustments to clinical schedules in the future to quote unquote, make up for lost time? I think people are gonna be fine as long as we get back to clinical education in a meaningful way within the next couple of months from now. Um, there's no question this is different but at the same time, I think we need to be innovative in terms of making sure that our stu students receive the clinical education that we owe them and that they need to become a doctor. I will mention that the LCME, our accreditation body, actually allows medical education in terms of, of, of the overall curriculum to include less clinical experience than we actually include in our curriculum. Our curriculum is longer than it has to be. It's not any longer than average, but it's longer than the requirement for graduation. Um, 
and the amount of clinical activity that we include in the curriculum is more than is the minimum required. Now, so that only addresses the graduation. And your question is, so we graduate, but are we well prepared? I think we can work to make sure that you are well prepared, that every student comes through so they're ready to become a resident. Um, I will also mention that the, while clinical education is very important, don't get me wrong, the becoming a doctor really happens more than anything after you have your medical degree. There's a reason though why you can't practice medicine right out of med school. You're not ready to practice medicine. To become a doctor, you need to be a doctor. You need to be an intern. You need to be a resident. You need to be the level above, still with supervision, but providing care directly to the patient in a way that you're frankly not allowed to do during med school. So any relative shortcoming in terms of the number of hours I think we can make up for during medical school. And also once you start internship, um, you'll be fine. I can say that when I became an intern, I felt like everybody around me was better than I was and felt that everybody had had more clinical experience than others. And, and, and um, I, I had a great education at Duke, but the intern next to me who had graduated from UT Southwestern, he seemed like he could put in a Swan Gans gath catheter behind his back. I mean, he, he seemed so experienced and really had a lot of clinical experience because he'd had his medical school at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, where it's famous for allowing students and, and interns to really be relatively autonomous. By the time we were a few months into our internship, everybody kind of rebalanced because those of us who hadn't had quite that degree of experience had had other parts of our education that were special. And we all ended up being, being kind of normalized, if you will, by our residency experience. Bottom line is I think this generation will be fine. That doesn't mean we're not anxious to get them back into clinical education. Great. Uh Actually, first, just a, a great story, and I think such an important uh, point to bring up, and I think that can hopefully alleviate some of the tension that we medical students are feeling. I think that there's a tendency to get so hyper-focused on, you know, what the next, you know, few months will hold, and, you know, how, how can I strategize to best place myself in this new and ever-evolving situation to get all the things that I want, but that you know, really, it's it's um, alleviating to hear from a mentor, so, so, someone like yourself, to say that there's a long road ahead and there's a much bigger picture of play here. And that's, you know, there's going to be plenty of, of time and, and opportunity to, you know, build ourselves into the positions that we want to be and that um, there is, you know, time to come after, after this pandemic and, and even, you know, beyond uh, after our applications and into our residencies and, and furthermore. Yeah, the system has always worked and it will continue to work. I, I feel confident. And I will mention that, that that feeling as an intern, that somehow you didn't get all the education that others got or that you really need. That's, you know, when I went back to a, a reunion of my class, everybody felt that way. 
So you're not alone. You're, you're, it's natural for all of us to worry. Have we received the preparation? Are we really ready? And my confidence and my pledge is that our students will be ready to start internships. Great. Um, it, one thing we were wondering, and uh, if you might have uh, some insight to, is uh, we were kind of curious if you think that some of the recent events, maybe not will be affecting the, the system as a whole, but maybe um, some of the intended specialties that medical students apply, especially as we've seen demand for certain specialties uh, in this kind of infectious disease environment that we're in. Um, do you think that might have a, an impact on, on what people, what students choose to apply into? It's a really interesting social experiment, isn't it? Yes. That, that, you know, if you step back from all the horrible things that are going on with COVID-19, and the challenges, the financial, the healthcare, the economic, the, you know, the loss that people are experiencing. When you step back from all of that and you see a huge change in everything that we do worldwide and wonder how, how is this going to change us forever? Um, and, and in a short term, what is the impact of suddenly infectious disease and public health being the things that we're all thinking about. Uh, what do I, I'm not reading cardiology except for how COVID-19 affects the presentation of a heart attack, the, the, how it affects um, the chest pain syndromes, and now this clotting disorder. Um, so at the same time, who are the heroes right now? Anthony Fauci, Dr. Burks, People with public health experience, our own uh, Deborah Leonard, chair of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, who stepped forward in terms of testing, our own Beth Kirkpatrick, uh, chair of the P Department of Microbiology and Medical Genetics, um, our own Jan Carney, um, who is, runs our public health uh, uh, education, um, our own Tim Leahy, who's both an infectious disease expert and an ethicist. So these are the heroes right now. So, so I think some people are going to say, wow, I want to go into ID. I want to go into, in, into intensive care. I know if there's a pandemic, I'll still have a really valuable role. Um, on the other hand, are there people who are going to say, wow, I'm, that's, that's scary to me. That's not what I want to do. I want to go another direction. I don't know how people are going to respond. I think it will go different ways. I mean, frankly, when this pandemic got started, um, in general, physicians and healthcare workers, as opposed to walking away from a fire, they were walking or running toward it. But some of us were concerned, and some of us still are concerned about the infectious disease and bringing it home to family and that sort of thing. So it'll, it will be interesting. I don't know how to predict, but I've got to say, if uh, if you had to envision the uh, the hero in healthcare right now, um, it's a fairly diminutive 80-year-old man who's been working at the NIH for just about his entire career. And I think um, if if you took a poll, I think he has greater admiration uh, in the United States and world than just about anybody. So who knows? Maybe everybody wants to become ID researchers 
going forward. We could use a few more of them. Absolutely. I, um, I am definitely a huge fan of Dr. Fauci, um, almost to the point that I've been looking to see uh, whether th there's, there's rumors that there may be a lapel pin uh, made in his honor at some point circulating around medical students. So I've been keeping an eye on that. But Dean Page, you know, I, you bring up a really interesting point and you touched a little bit on it earlier about, you know, these changes and how um, changes, whether it be to medical students' perceptions or medical education, um, might, might be forever different um, in, a, in a post to COVID world. And that's sort of a term that I think Dylan and I have heard attending is sort of use more and more, you know, referring to um, the way things were as pre-COVID and the way things are now post-COVID, kind of with an assumption that these changes might be forever. And we would love to get your thoughts on, you know, how you think the world of medicine will forever be changed and what components you think are really just more temporary. That's a great question. I think the, you know, some people talk about post-COVID being able to go on spring break and do all the, these huge crowd things. And, and that, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. And frankly, you know, um, that if we ever get there, it will depend on, on probably one of three things. One is, is if, we're, if we aren't smart and this just burns through our population and, and uh, people talk about herd immunity, but that, that, that um, is really a dangerous way to look at this because to get there would cause so much death of so many people. That's not the answer. Uh, the potential two answers would be if a very effective treatment were suddenly identified. So if someone gets infected, they're treated, and you know, you think of HIV. When I was looking at residency, HIV was everywhere in terms of, of internal medicine. And we didn't even know that it was viral when I was in, in medical school. But, but now HIV has really effective treatment. Um, so either a very effective treatment or a, an effective vaccine. And I'm optimistic about vaccines, although some, some people have expressed concern that coronaviruses mutate so quickly. There's a reason why we don't have a cold vaccine for the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So, so one of those two things would be necessary for things to magically go back to normal. Although I don't think, I think no matter what, even if we had the opportunity to trust that we, there are COVID, you couldn't get COVID anymore. If you did, it would be trivial. Uh, people are still going to be more aware of the, the possibility of pandemic and be aware of the, um, the fact that, um, that we could still be at risk for something like this occurring again. Um, I'm hoping um, that medical care will still allow us to go see a patient without having to put on full protective equipment. Uh, even before um, this all came out. If I was in clinic and I needed to see someone who was diagnosed with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, MRSA, um, I had to use someone else's stethoscope in the room. I had to put on gown, mask, and I did not deliver the same kind of care as I would walking in casually back and forth with the stethoscope. I'm hoping we won't have to have protective equipment for all patient interaction, but I think as we start to reopen care, some level of protective equipment is going to be necessary. 
So I think we'll see. I'm hoping we can get to the point where medical care still is face-to-face, -face, no mask. Um, but we're not going to be there anytime very soon, I'm afraid. Dean Page, we, we certainly appreciate your uh, continued optimism and support of us medical students throughout this journey. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's really my great pleasure. And thanks for doing this. this I think you both have a career in front of you if you wanted to have this as a, as a, a side hustle, if, as you call it. Um, but, uh, but also just getting the word out. And, and from my standpoint, uh, anytime I get to spend time with our, our medical students is a joy. So congratulations to both of you. Thank you for what you're doing, getting the word out and representing our college so well. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Being with us. Thank you. And to our listeners, as a quick heads up, um, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont. You can also follow me if you'd like at the Matt Tsai. We will be releasing an upcoming bonus segment to this episode featuring the voices of dozens of our peers in, at the Lorna College of Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Everyone take care. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Tsai. And I'm Dylan Pindakshin. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.